0: The New Apostolic Reformation Movement, and where we left off last time, and I'm sorry that you can't see the screen, but I'm talking about the false decrees that the leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation Movement make. And in these decrees, I want you to realize that these false apostles are not merely predicting what will happen in the future, but they are asserting that they can create the future that when they speak, these things necessarily will come about. So I want you to remember, well, before we go any further, let me uh, start with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day together. We thank you that we can come together and learn your word. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at the heirs of the new apostolic reformation movement that you would impress upon us the truth of who your apostles were, that they were personal spokesmen called by you, And that we don't have any new ones today. I pray, Lord, that everyone would be convinced of that truth so that we all can contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in these new Apostolic Reformation decrees, they're declaring the future. And I want you to remember that last week we made a distinction between two wills that God has one is God's moral will that He reveals through the Scriptures. Those are what we must do and what we must not do in order to be pleasing to him. But we also talked about a decreative will that God has. Some of God's decreative will is revealed in the scripture. The decreative will of God is the will in which he necessarily brings things about because he's omnipotent, he's all powerful. Now, as I mentioned, some of God's decreative will is talked about in the Bible, for example, we know from Romans eleven twenty six, one day all Israel will be saved. That's God's decreative will, and that's revealed. But some of God's decretive will, that is things that will necessarily come about, are not revealed. For example, did God reveal that the Kansas City Chiefs, that they would win the Super Bowl last Sunday or the Sunday before? Well, no, that was not revealed, yet God had certainly decreed that since it came about. So what I want you to realize is these new apostolic reformation movement proponents are asserting, these false apostles, they are really claiming the decreative will that God has alone. They are usurping the authority of God. And so I hope you have your handout. And again, I apologize, our PowerPoint isn't working. Right now I'm on slide two where it says, who decrees our future? I think that's listed as slide two, maybe, or slide three, depending on how they list it on the handout. But I want you to read there where notice what this is during a three-day readathon at the US Capitol. This is the August of 2022. And this is Dutch Sheet's reading. He says, I nearly passed out. He said, You can believe I read the Word of God with authority, the word of the Lord, making prophetic declaration over the government of this nation with absolute faith that revival is coming. And then he went on to say a bunch of decrees. He listed these. He said, We decree that America's executive branch of government will honor God and defend the Constitution. Number two, he said, We decree that our legislative branch, Congress, will write only laws that are righteous and constitutional. Now, stop there for a moment. That is certainly a wish, And that is certainly a desire that we all have. We probably share a very similar voting politic to Dutch Sheets. However, he is claiming that this will necessarily come about. Why? Because he's an apostle who speaks authoritatively for Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is speaking this into existence. On the next slide, I'm going to be talking about the New Apostolic Reformation movement's false usage of language how they believe language is like a force where you can become a little god and speak things into existence as well now the first thing though i want to lay out is that god alone makes the decrees and so i want to look up a bunch of verses with you could somebody turn their bibles to daniel 417 daniel 417 and we'll read some verses in daniel about God making decrees regarding the future. And you will see that these decrees can be good or bad. It's simply about what will come, up, come to pass in history. Uh, Bob has often said that when we talk about the doctrine of providence, providence contains both good and evil. Yet God is sovereign and he's on the throne. So notice here, this is in Daniel 4.17. Notice the decree was given... By God. It so said, This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, notice the claim that this decree, the Gezerah, it's literally an edict is that of the watchers, the Ahir. And these would be the angelic beings that are part of God's divine counsel. But who sits over the divine counsel? We know this from Job chapter 1, from 1 Kings 22. Uh, we know it from the Bible that God is the one who sits over the throne. Do you remember when Satan went before God in the throne room and asked to sift Job? who was it that ultimately had to give permission for that to take place? It was God. So this is a decree that comes from God himself, that God is the one who can take the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he ends up driving him to eat grass like the beast of the field. And so the decree, although it begins with God, it extends to his divine counsel and then down to mankind. One of the errors that the new apostolic reformation movement makes is that they are claiming to be invited to the divine council. They are making decrees that come from God alone. Uh, Let's look at another one. This is Daniel 9.27. And I'm using this one because it's pretty famous to a lot of you, the famous Daniel 70 weeks prophecy. You'll see that God decrees the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple in fact the abomination of desolation committed by the antichrist in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel but who's on the throne God is so it's decreed that this will happen God is in control Daniel 9:27 it says and he this by the way is the antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many for one week but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. Now stop there. What destruction is being referred to? Well, the one that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, where the Antichrist sets himself up to be God in the temple, as Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians 2, he declares himself to be God. And then remember, according to Daniel 7, he will wear down the saints. He will get rid of their law, and he will become the law. Why? Because he is the lawless one. He is God, and he will present himself to be as such. Well, I want you to see that that certainly is something that's evil, but yet notice, God is the one who's decreed it. In the very next part of Daniel nine twenty seven, he says, one that is decreed, that is the destruction that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So who is decreeing this? Well, God is. So God decrees that which is good and that which is bad. Here, Dutch Sheets and these false apostles are claiming the power to do that. And so that is something that, sure enough, should bother all of us. Now, what I want to do is kind of shift to how they understand language. And I was talking to Bob about this some weeks ago. And we both agreed that there is some overlap between the New Apostolic Reformation movement And something called the Word of Faith movement. How many have ever heard of the Word of Faith movement? Many of you have. The Word of Faith movement and the New Apostolic Reformation movement share a very similar understanding of language. And the idea is that language is the container of a force in which people can speak things into existence to become little gods themselves. And the proof that that's exactly how these false apostles see themselves. Notice what Dutch Sheets says. Dutch Sheets quotes from Romans 10, 9 through 10, and I want you to see how he applies it. Dutch Sheets says, quote, more and more believers are learning the power of agreeing with God in our hearts and declaring it from our mouths. Notice, stop there for a moment in this quote that I have. He says, more and more believers are agreeing with God. Now, are we commanded to agree with God? Or to trust in God. Trust. Or have faith in God or believe. So, do you see then there's equivocation on what's necessary to have a relationship with God? It's no longer I trust in Him as a subservient underneath God, but now rather as a partner who is agreeing with Him. I agree with God. So notice he says we are born again the greatest of all miracles when we believe the gospel in our hearts and confess it with our mouths. He says the Greek word translated, this is Romans 10, 9-10 he says the Greek word translated confess, homologeo means to quote say the same thing as another. In a biblical context it means to say what God says. Well in the biblical context that is not what that term means. What Dutch Sheets is performing is something called the root fallacy. And what the root fallacy means is that the root of a term is only and always what that term means. So let me give you an example. Let's say 200 years from now, sometimes we use the term fire to fire a gun. We say, ready, aim, fire. Or we can say someone is fired from their job And I want you to realize that that two different firings are, they're completely different, right? But let's say 200 years from now, you have some linguist who says, well, in America, they could never use fire to get rid of an employee since the term fire had to do with shooting a gun. Well, you would say, well, no, it depended on the context. We could use fire for shooting a gun, or we could talk about fire that's burning, or we could talk about firing someone from their job." The context determines. In the same way, homologeo, yes, it means homo. You can hear the term even for homosexuality. It means same. Logeo is word. So it's same word. But in the context, it really means to confess or to give testimony. Now, the reason that's important is when you and I confess Jesus Christ, the issue is not that we are using the same words that God uses The issue is that our trust is placed in the person and work of Christ. So when it says that if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right, you will be saved, the confession is that which shows the inward faith to be valid. Let's say I claim to be a believer, but I never confess Christ with my mouth. It may be an indication I don't really believe. Just as I say, I believe that chair will hold me, but I never sit in it, do I really trust it? And so the confession is not where we simply agree with God and therefore I'm a partner, but the confession is simply showing that I really do believe what I claim to believe, that my trust in Jesus Christ is really valid. Why? Because I'm willing to be shamed in front of the world and I'll confess who he is and what he's done. And so what Dutch Sheets is subtly trying to do is he's trying to take the confession of Christ to be like a formula in which you use certain words to manipulate the world around you. And that's the concern that I think all of us should have regarding the usage of language. In fact, this is what the Word of Faith movement does with language as well. They believe that if they speak certain words, the words necessarily contain a force that will bring a certain reality about. So we really have two choices. The two choices that we have, and I had this on the screen, are that words contain a metaphysical force. They're containers, and therefore you and I can manipulate the world around us. Or the words are something that signify the reality around us. And words can only do something if they first means something. So let's take the term push. You can talk about it in different contexts. Billy pushes Sally. Is there a metaphysical entity out there in the world named push? Does push have being? No, it is merely a word that describes an act. So my point is pushing can only do something if it first means something. Now why is that important? Because The New Apostolic Reformation Movement and the Word of Faith Movement say words are a force. And if you will simply confess the words that God does, you can start manipulating the world around you. In fact, listen to what Dutch Sheet says. Dutch Sheet says, "...by confessing, declaring, or decreeing our faith in God's Word has become become somewhat controversial due to unbalanced teaching by some and ignorance of the Scriptures on the part of others." It need not be, however, simply stated, listen to what he's claiming, the power of God's word, and from what the Holy Spirit says prophetically, must be released by us, unquote. Now, how do we do that? He goes on to say one of the ways we do this is with our mouths. So he's claiming, just as the word of faith proponents do, that our mouths unleash power because the words themselves are a metaphysical force that can change things. Now, what you and I have to have is a shift to say, no, that's false, because biblical faith is not a force, as I'm unleashing a force through my words, but biblical faith is always directed towards the object of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. So do you see then the Word of Faith movement and the New Apostolic Reformation movement They have a trust, not in Jesus Christ, but in the power of their words. Do you see that? So if I get on the end of the runway with my airplane, I say, fly, 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 fly. If I say it loud enough, is the airplane going to fly? No, No, I'm going to have to add power to that thing. Because it's the engine that makes it fly. Now, I can describe the flying by using words, but my words aren't going to make it fly. It's going to be power. By the way, I had a An examination, every rating you get, you have to have a check ride. And I'll never forget, in my private pilot check ride, I was only 17 years old. Bill Mavenkamp, by the way, he was in the Guinness Book of World Records. He had the largest flying family in the world. He had 13 children. They all flew. Um, He was a flight examiner. He had just thousands of hours. I mean, he'd probably been around since the Wright brothers. I mean, this guy flew, 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 flew. So I was a little nervous. I was intimidated. I was only 17. I'm sitting in his office up in Maple Lake, Minnesota. And he's like, at the time in his 70s, I'm 17. He says, Eric, what makes an airplane fly? So I start teaching him Bernoulli's principle: principle, when a fluid reaches a constriction, it has an increase in velocity and decrease of pressure. And I can, he's just looking back in his chair, like this is this is crazy. And I'm thinking, oh no, I'm failing already. And he looked at me with the wisdom of a 70-year-old man. He said, money. Money makes the airplane fly. <laughs> the point is, if you don't have money, you're not going to fly because it's a lot of money to fly. My point is, words don't do it. As Bill Mavenkamp would say, it's money more than words, right? But you get the point. Words aren't going to create anything. So we have to see that shift and call people out who are engaged in it in the Word of Faith movement or the New Apostolic Reformation movement. We have to say, my faith is in the person and work of Christ, your faith is in the power of your own words. That's the serious nature of this equivocation. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 4. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, 7 through 9. 1 Corinthians 14, 7 through 9. Now, as you're turning there, someone, as we talk about this, will inevitably cite the book of James, well, recall James talks about the tongue and how the tongue is so powerful it can be akin to a rudder on a ship that can move a ship or it can start a whole forest fire. You read about this in James 3, 5 through 8. And so someone will say, well, Eric, doesn't James say that speech can do things? It can set a whole forest ablaze or steer a ship on a rudder. It does say that, but James' point is that words mean something. And because words mean something to people who are intelligent beings made in the image of God, those words can hurt people. That's James' point. But it's not that the words do something in and of themselves, but words have to mean something. It's not that the words have power, like there's a piece of push, or if I say fly, 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 there's a piece of fly out there, and I'm unleashing that power, no, words have to mean something for them to do something. They have to mean something before they do something. Why is that important? Because in our postmodern world, they say you can't know words. Well, yes, we can. We can know words. I'm post-postmodern. And yes, we can know words, and we must. Jesus says in John twelve forty eight, This is that which will judge you in the last day, the very words that I have spoken. So if Christ is going to judge us by the words that we have "He has spoken," then it's incumbent upon us to understand them, and therefore we can understand them. So notice here, in 1 Corinthians 14:7 through9, Paul is rebuking those who are stuck and focused on just speaking in tongues and accusing others who don't have the same gift as being inferior. He says, yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? Notice verse 8. He says, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So what's his point? Notice he says, verse 9, so also you, he's making an analogy, so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. So do you notice that Paul is saying, unless you speak something that can be intelligibly understood, it's useless. Well, what that means is words have to mean something. Words aren't just a force. See, if the New Apostolic Reformation movement were correct or those who are in the Word of Faith movement were correct, words wouldn't have to mean anything because they simply do something. Um, Bob, remember the term snurp? You could simply say snurp, 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 snurp. It doesn't mean anything, but there's power there according to the Word of Faith movement or according to those in the New Apostolic Reformation movement, and you could do things. But the Apostle Paul, who speaks authoritatively for Christ, is saying no words have to mean something. They must first mean in order for them to do. Yes, Ron.
1: I was just sitting here thinking about somebody that took the word thing too far the other way I don't know who it was, it a Catholic mystic or something, said, uh, "Use uh, preach the gospel and use words if necessary." Right, who said that. Well, anyway, right, yeah, that's wrong,
0: too exactly far. Exactly right. That's right. Doesn't Paul teach us to preach the word in season and out of season? We are to be those who confess Christ. We are to be those who contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. So it's interesting. Is in I've heard that same saying, Ron. And in those who go beyond Scripture or aren't concerned with Scripture, your actions are more important than the words of the Gospel. But when you read the Scriptures, it's the words of the Gospel that matters most. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by seeing the good actions of Jim or Jerry or, you know, know. no. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean our actions are not important. We want to certainly... What would you say? We want to color our words with godly actions, but it's the words that bring people to saving faith. And again, they have to be intelligibly understood. So yeah, great point. Yep, we have to preach the gospel. So in our postmodern world, the postmodern world is saying you can't understand words. What you and I have to say is no words are understood. They're clearly understood so that all are without excuse and people are on the hook for knowing who God is through his word. And by the way, this brings up another issue, and that is what kind of inability do we have as human beings? And one thing that Bob and I have uh, hit on a time or two is that the inability that we have as sinners before we come to faith in Christ, before regeneration, is there's a debate in theology, is it what we call a natural inability or a moral inability. A natural inability would be one in which we as humans simply cannot understand what God is saying to us through his word. As if God is speaking in a different language, Chinese, and we only speak English. Or he's speaking in some heavenly language and no human being can understand of it. Maybe think of it that way. And so the idea that some have is that regeneration... God gives us the ability for the first time to understand the language he's speaking, and then we can come to faith. Now, we believe in something called moral inability. And as I say this, this does not mean that our sin nature and the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden didn't impact all of our lives. It did. The sin of Adam and Eve is imputed to us, and original sin affects our minds. It affects our bodies. It affects us in the totality of who we are. We don't think quite right. That's certainly true. But the inability that the scriptures speak of is not a natural inability where God's speaking a different language, I can't understand it, but something called a moral inability. And the difference is that we know precisely what God is saying, but we don't like it. We're morally opposed to it. And so this is why Jesus says in John three nineteen, he says, yes, the light came into the world, But men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds are evil. So when the light came, God revealing himself through Christ and therefore the scriptures, it's not that men couldn't understand what he was saying. Jesus doesn't say they love darkness for they couldn't understand the light. He says, for they love their deeds of darkness. They love their sin and they knew that if they would repent and come to faith in Christ, what that means is they have to change their lives. That's moral inability. Yes, Paul, we'll get you a microphone here. Just a quick clarification, if you would, uh, about the depravity of man who we can't
2: understand until the Holy Spirit convicts.
0: Yes, yes, I, so I agree. So sin does affect our understanding. But again, what's interesting is the Bible declares to us, and I'll show you a passage, we'll in fact turn to it in Romans, where our inability is primarily a moral one. So it's not that we just don't understand what God is saying, and therefore, in some sense, we're off the hook. I can't understand what he's saying. No, what Jesus is saying is we understand what he's saying, we just don't like it, we're morally opposed to it. And a great passage that proves this, if you'll turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10... And I want to relate that to this understanding of what saving faith is so that we're absolutely convinced of the clarity of Scripture and how every person is on the hook. That no one can say, well, I just didn't understand. No, we can understand. It's just that we don't like it. Romans chapter 10, I think we'll start in verse 6 if I recall. By the way, I was confessing to Bob, I stole my son's Bible. I, I claim borrowed it. So my poor boy's without his Bible this morning, but he, um, I'm sure he'll find one at home. Romans ten six. Okay, I'm sorry.
1: Oh, yeah, thanks, Bob. Romans 10, starting with verse 6, says, but the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your Mouth Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. And that's an important passage to clarify the difference between spiritual and moral inability and just natural human inability. In other words, if you would say, to be saved, sprout wings and fly to the moon. (laughs) Right. Th- then that would be an utter absurdity. We can't do that, right? Right. And so, what is being said is that we must believe what is objectively true. Amen. God really did, God the Son, come into our world. He really did live a sinless life. He really did predict His own death, burial, and resurrection. He really did appear to many witnesses. Yeah. And so, what we're asking people to do is believe what is objectively true, Amen. reasonable, and, and clear. So if it were the other way, as it says here in this hypothetical, yeah. you know, um, go up and bring him down, we couldn't do that. Amen. So what what's offensive to people is human pride doesn't want to believe that the sinless savior would die for the sins of wretched enemies of God. Amen. So the moral part says, no, I won't believe that. Right. The, the old time liberals used to call it a slaughterhouse religion. Right. They'd mock it, right? Yeah, they would mock that. Um, so, th- that causes people to stumble. Amen. Because the default faith of the fallen human race is human ability. Amen. Amen. And so... If you say, no, you can't solve your own problem, you need to humble yourself, trust God. So, is that what the passage you were on? Right, yeah. amen. Yeah. Absolutely okay.
0: well said. So the citation that Paul is alluding to there is from Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm sorry, I'll come right to you. And what's interesting is Bob just described, Paul's point is that God has not asked us to do something impossible, that we have to go bring Christ down or go to Sheol, bring him up. He's not asked us simply to believe the word that was spoken. And so the idea then is that believing the word isn't something impossible, it's something that's right at hand. As Bob just alluded to, the fact is we're morally opposed to that. Why is that important in this discussion? Because what it shows us is that words simply mean something, not as the New Apostolic Reformation movement is claiming that they do something because they have a force. If the words just did something because they had a force, then you and I wouldn't have to explain things. The meaning would be irrelevant. We could just speak things into being. Now, some will say, well, didn't God speak the world into being? He did. But here's a difference. He's God and I'm not. So there's some metaphysical properties behind what God is doing that he doesn't allow us to know. What does it mean to have that kind of power where he is such a powerful warrior God that he can stomp out all of his enemies with the sword of his tongue. That's described. That's how he will... It's going to be the most lopsided battle of all time, the battle at Armageddon. He's going to slay his enemies, and he can do it by merely stopping their hearts. He can do it by speaking it. I don't have that power, and neither do you. And so when the New Apostolic Reformation movement are claiming that they can decree things into being, they are declaring themselves to have the very power that God does. And again, they're saying words in and of themselves do things. What well, we are claiming, this is the category shift, is no, they mean something. They don't do something, they mean something. That's how you and I are to use words. And so that's why we as we're all theologians in here. We are to be those who are careful with our words and how we understand the scriptures. We distinguish between this category and that category. We just did one. We, we distinguish between natural inability and moral inability. We distinguish between, between these things all the time. Why? Because we're trying to understand cognitively as human beings made in the image of God. Yes, Brian. The NAR and these other groups,
3: they'll also take th- terms from the Bible and they'll twist what it means for example they'll take calling glory down from heaven calling the Holy Spirit down from heaven calling fire down from heaven so all of those terms our biblical fire glory. Yes. Okay, but but it's like they're doing it. They're bringing, so when, when Bob was reading the uh, uh, Romans 10, that bringing God, bringing Christ down to earth,
0: well, that's exactly what a lot of their terminology, <laughs> twisted terminology, is doing. Right. Sure, absolutely. No, you're exactly right. In fact, that's a great segue to what we're coming to. Um, absolutely. I'm sorry, we had another, oh, Rich, yes.
3: I think this is fundamental in the separation between those who are truly saved and who are not saved. The very purpose of God, the very purpose of God is his glory and how he is glorified is that... We understand our desperate, our spiritual poverty and our desperate need for the person and the work of Christ. And so our adherence and our devotion and our praise and our worship is to Christ knowing our desperate need. I think the false understanding of Christianity goes right to the Garden of Eden, our participation with God. I think that's damnable offense. Yes. I think that um, the NAR movement is um, Arminianism on steroids... I I think that is just a wicked, wicked understanding of Christianity that God's purpose is he's looking for people who are willing to make a commitment to him and a decision for him to participate with him. And it's like, no, no, repent and faith. That's what the Holy Spirit brings to us is repentance and faith. It's humbling. It's my desperate need for Christ because I'm such a wicked man. What did Paul say? I mean, here's Paul. Romans seven twenty four. 24, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, it's just so fundamental, my need, my need, my need yes. for Christ.
0: Amen. Well said, Rich. As you said that, I was thinking of in, the, in Genesis, in the garden, what's the original sin? You will be like God, right. knowing the difference between good and evil. What is the new apostolic reformation movement saying? You will be like God because I am. Amen. I can, he speaks in things into being. I speak things into being because I'm a little God. And what I'm saying and what you're saying is exactly right. No, we are under God. He is the creator, and we are the creation. Amen. And we have to submit to that, to say, no, he speaks things into being not me. Yes, Deb. I'm sorry, we'll get, you, um, we get a microphone so that anything you say can and will be held against you. <laughs> or for you. Now I don't know if I want to share. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> no pressure. Uh,
2: I was just um, thinking about how we are always rejecting the surrender to Christ for trying to gain control again. Yes. So I was thinking about the speaking, the mantras, like repeating a phrase, the rosary, repetitious prayer, yes. yoga, you know, claiming a verse for someone, yes. you know, and, and witchcraft for that matter. It's always like repeating something to gain power. We're always, as humans, looking for a way to kind of reject this idea that we can trust Christ and replace it with something where we can control it through words.
0: Amen. It's exactly right. Bob, you ran into this at Bethel Seminary where Bob and I go to seminary to understand what God has said cognitively and rationally. But there was a provost, Eliason. he brought in teachers who were teaching something called Lectio Divina. And what that is, is you'd go to a passage and you read it over and over and over. And it's a quote-unquote sacred reading because as you use it as a mantra, it induces you into an altered state of consciousness, almost like just um, like hypnosis. And all of a sudden, you start contacting the angelic and demonic realm directly. Okay, so they use their Bible like a Ouija board. That's exactly the idea behind using words as a force. It's the same thing. No, what we say is, no, the words mean something, And our goal as the interpreter is to understand the author's intent. The author, whether it was Paul or Luke or Mark, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so if I understand Paul's intent, I'm understanding the Spirit's intent, and therefore I'm understanding what God has said. So our goal isn't mystical, it's rational. Our goal is never to say words do something, but rather mean something. That's something we have to be convinced of. So, great points, all of you. Thank you. Um, Now, I want to... Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Yes.
1: So, you're saying people use the Bible as an idol?
0: Absolutely, they can. Absolutely. Um, I I went. Maybe not so much an idol, but um, like a conduit
1: uh, to idolatry. Yes, Bob. In other words, taking repeated phrases from the Bible out of context... And assuming because they were found in the Bible, there's going to be some power in those words themselves separated from the author who spoke them. Okay. And um, this is so prevalent. I was thinking we're looking at these decrees. Yeah. When uh, Chris Roseboro and I were out at that emergent conference when we wrote about that and researched it there were some of the top what we would call liberal we are god panentheists there at that conference and they're doing a similar thing in a different context if everyone in other words meditates and gets in touch with the oneness of god goddess in the universe this panentheist god is in everything then that will become reality.
0: Right. They bring so
1: at one and the same time, you have conservatives decreeing these sort of things that America will have it, it be this, this, and this because we decreed it into the heavens, it will be. And we've got New Agers, what well, we used to call New Agers, now um, Panentheists and emergent and convergent now they call it yeah. they're doing the same thing through meditation and getting into this altered state and so we have competing groups trying to control the future destiny of the world but what what they're both doing wrong is not submitting to God as the providential creator who, who in his providence. Brings things forward as he promised he would. Amen. And agreeing to the terms about how we come to him and believe what he said. Amen. So Amen. the absurdity of it, if, if someone was just irreligious altogether, yeah. like our Leroy Schultz is right. now. Say, okay, they're going to chant and meditate into a future where there's no judgment and everything becomes one. And the conservatives are going to decree a conservative Christian future in this country by their words the absurdity of it said we might as well just be atheists right so the alternative alternative is to believe what god said <laughs> and to submit to his word and to take things in context as they were spoken Amen. so what makes the bible the powerful word of god isn't the type of typeface the paper The gold on the outside of the cover, the leather, it's the fact that God has spoken. And if you read it on a little computer, it would still be the word of God if that's what it is. So our goal should be to understand what God said, not gain some mystical idea and then put it into play.
0: Right, right. So
1: there's such a dearth of sound Bible teaching it helps people understand the bible for what it does say yeah so other people are confused right amen well said Yeah, you push away.
3: (laughs) I say there is power in like repetitive reading because I read every night when I go to bed and I keep reading the same sentence over and over and then I fall asleep.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can't can't push back against that. You, you, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, point taken, Brian. Well said. Uh, Yes, Luann in the back.
2: I was just thinking of how we're in this problem of how we want to cheapen some things and ignore the big things. And so, like, in this time of Lent, you know, people think, well, I'm going to suffer for, you know, the season and I'm going to give up chocolate. Which is just, you know, I mean, to compare that with the suffering of Christ is just blasphemy. But like um, uh, Rich was saying, you know, if we—the biggest— miracle there is is that God would save anyone wretched like any of us. Amen. And so when you look at um, uh, Romans one i I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power. That's God's power Amen. for salvation to everyone who believes.
0: Amen. For everyone who believes. They believe what is said. Let's talk a little bit about saving faith for just a moment. The reformers had a threefold understanding of saving faith and I think it's biblical if you unpack it. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to think of three elements in that saving faith. The first is what the Reformers called notitia, which is knowledge. The idea is that the gospel has content to it who Christ is, what he's done, why we need him, how do we receive him. All of that has content to it that we can know. We must know cognitively. But just because you know doesn't mean that you're saved. There's a second part the reformer said to saving faith and that's a census, m- merely mental assent. Mental assent says, not only do I have the facts of who Christ is, what he's done, why I need him, how do I receive him, but I believe those things are true. But we're still not saved the reformer said. They said we must have something called fiducia to say that's for me or a trust. And a good example of where they're, I think they are why I think they're correct is remember in the book of James, it talks about demons who believe and shudder. And the same term for believe for us, Pastuos use. there's no distinction. The difference is the demons, yes, they know who Christ is. In fact, you remember as Jesus cast them out, they know who he is. Son of man, what do we have to do with you? Are you going to cast us into the abyss before the time? They'll ask him questions. They say, please don't cast us in the abyss yet. They know who he is, they have knowledge. They even have the mental assent. They know these facts are true about him, but they want nothing to do with him. They don't have fiducia. And so that's that third element where we say, I have the facts, I believe they're true, and it's for me. It's like believing that chair. I know that chair is a chair, but the fiducia is where I sit in it. And so that's why the idea of belief and trust is often synonymous, that those who trust in the rock placed in Zion will never be ashamed We'll never be disappointed, as one translation puts it by the Apostle Paul. Why? Because you and I are going to have the promises of God. And so the idea of saving faith is a cognitive one. Yes, it is that, but it is also more than that. It's a trust, saying those things are for me. Christ's death, as a substitute, is in my place. And so, Luann, back to your point, when we focus on the chocolate, is that what Christ has done for me? Did Christ just simply say, well, don't eat chocolate and you're in? Or was it the fact that he died a substitutionary death once and for all, the just or the unjust, in order to bring us to God? It's the latter. This is why in Colossians 2, Paul is very clear that even the most severe abasement of the body, the severe treatment of the body, is of no avail against the indulgence of the flesh. So we can flog ourselves and do all sorts of things to ourselves, and it will not prevent us from sinning. Not eating chocolate will not make us more holy. Is Lent so, in the
1: Bible?
0: Lent is not in the Bible. Yes, there you go. <laughs> right, exactly right. Well said. Okay, so I'm gonna. Oh, I'm sorry, Judy.
3: Trust and believe the truth.
0: Amen. Trust and believe the truth. Because if you
3: don't have the truth, then everything that you're believing.
0: Amen. That's right. It's the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Amen. That narrow path. So I think there was a good segue I think Brian had made, and that is on equivocation on much of the biblical terms. So in other words, the New Apostolic Reformation movement will take a term from the Bible, and they'll change it. I want to run into a specific text that Bob has dealt with. In fact, um, if you would... Turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, 24 through 25. Please turn your Bibles there. But as you're doing so, I want to point out, Bob did a critical issues commentary podcast. It's called Incessory Prayer by Dutch Sheets Part 11. You can listen to it where he talks about this in depth. And I'll cite that again at the end of our message this morning. But turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, 24 through 25. Now again, I, um, I have this on a slide that you have in your handout, but I'll put it up on my slide here and I'll read from it. And I'll show you how the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, in particular Dutch Sheets, equivocates on this passage and what it actually means. Colossians 1, 24 through 25, the Apostle Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now does everyone notice at the end of verse 24, Paul talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The point that Dutch Sheets makes here and some others in the New Apostolic Reformation movement is that here is a call for humans, in this case, the Apostle Paul, but human beings to make up for what was deficient in what Christ did. In other words, we have to do, as humans, to make up for what Christ had left off. So Jesus got us nine yards towards the first down, but we have to get that extra yard, so to speak. We have to punch it in the end zone, however you want to put it, right? Now, what he's claiming then is that this filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions means that Christ left some work undone for our redemption, for our salvation, and that it's incumbent upon human beings to do the rest. And hence, therefore, we are like these little gods who can speak things into being, who make decrees, who have faith, and therefore bring a kingdom to the earth using faith as a force. Okay. Now, what I want to do is show... That that's not the understanding of what it means to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. First of all, read further if you have your Bibles open. Let's read Colossians 1, 26 through 28, and I'll show you that in the very context of this passage, there's nothing lacking that you have by being in Christ. Notice Paul went on to say, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. Remember, stop there. A mystery In the New Testament is something that was formerly concealed, but now is revealed through the apostles, right? But has now been manifested, that is made evident to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is his riches of glory, of his mystery, excuse me, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ, Notice we will be complete in Christ. We know that through what Christ does, we have all that we need. So what we want to do is define what does Paul really mean then by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. If you and I are complete in Christ, or will be, then what could possibly be lacking in what Christ did? Well, the first thing I want to point, you out, point out to you is that, do you remember in Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul, at the time he's Saul, and he had been, of course, going after the Church of God and Church of Christ, he had been persecuting them. But remember, the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, he confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. And remember, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, it's very interesting, if you read that carefully, notice that Paul this is from Acts 9.4. Does not say Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Notice very carefully, he says, Why are you persecuting me? One hint that we have here that relates to Colossians 1:24 is that so associated with Christ are the people of Christ, believers, that there's a corporate solidarity. If we suffer, he suffers. If we are persecuted, He is being persecuted. In fact, um, if you go on to Acts 9.16, I'll read this to you. Jesus says to Paul, he says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So part of the afflictions of the people of God, the people of Christ, are because we are so associated with him that we are called to the same sufferings. It's not that Jesus Christ was lacking in what he accomplished for us on the cross, but rather you and I are going to suffer and fill up the bucket of suffering that has been ordained from the beginning of the world for the people of God. And what I'm claiming is what Paul is saying in Colossians 1.24 is not that what Christ did was deficient, for we'll turn to that passage in John where he says, It is finished. Didn't Jesus say that on the cross, it is finished? Well, if the new apostolic reformation movement is correct, it wasn't finished because there were things that were lacking that you and I have to make up for as human beings. Yeah, that's a big whoops. But if we understand this appropriately and properly, what Paul is saying is that there is a filling up of the entirety of suffering that the people of God will have. And after that happens, the Lord returns. And so what Paul is saying is that he was filling up a good share of what was lacking in the corporate afflictions, the tribulations of Christ. He was filling up a good share of suffering himself as the bucket is being filled of the people of God. And so we really have a choice. Are we going to look at what is lacking in Christ's afflictions as Jesus' work being deficient? I have this on slide five. So if you look at slide five, these are two, two choices. Is Jesus' work deficient? Is that how we understand the phrase, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Or do we understand it that Jesus' corporate body will suffer too and that there will be a filling up of the afflictions of God's people who belong to Christ? I think that's the proper way of understanding this, the clear way. Now, let me just lay out the case for you. First of all, I have on this slide, John nineteen thirty. Notice Jesus on the cross has said, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, remember, he's dying on the cross. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus finished the work of atonement and salvation completely for us. Meaning the moment he died, payment had been paid in full. In the atonement, we have expiation, the removal of our sins, and we have propitiation the appeasement of God's wrath. And it is complete. There is nothing lacking. There is no deficiency. And therefore, clearly, these false apostles are not right in saying, well, Jesus did most things, but we have to kind of finish the task. No, that's not what's being claimed here. Think about 1 Corinthians 1.7. This Paul said, so you said, so you're not lacking, you as believers, in any gift, as you wait eagerly the revelation of our Lord. Ephesians 1.3, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. 2 Timothy 3.17, we're equipped for every good work. So if it's finished, we're not lacking in any gift, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, and we're equipped for every good work. What is lacking in the work of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. So what does he mean then to fill up what is lacking? In the Bible, there is a filling motif. And we see it all over the place. For example, turn your, to, to the next slide, if you will. Genesis 15, 16. Genesis 15, 16. I want you to see here that God is revealing the plan that he has for the Israelite nation. And he says, you're going to be in captivity for 400 years, and then you will come back to this land. But notice he says, when? He says, then in the fourth generation. Notice Genesis 15, 16. They'll return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So there is a filling up of the iniquity of the Amorites. And once that gets full, God knows historically when that will happen. Then the Israelites get to move into the land. But there's going to be a filling up of that. There is a filling up of the righteous deeds of the saints. There's a filling up of the suffering of the saints. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts the book of Acts, chapter three, verse nineteen through twenty-one. Acts three, nineteen through twenty-one. Please turn your Bibles there. Acts three, nineteen. Here Peter is preaching, and notice his preaching, he says, Therefore, this is Acts three nineteen. He says, Repent and return. So he's calling people to repent. Notice the so that. What's the purpose of the repentance? So that your sins may be wiped away, there's salvation. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, there's the return. And notice there's a chi there, verse 20, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Wait a minute, I should repent so that he may send Jesus, the Christ? The idea is that there's a filling up of the bucket. Of all of the saints, think about it. at some someday in the future. Maybe today we don't know. Christ knows, God knows. There is going to be the last saint that repents and believes, and that's filled up, and then Christ returns. There is a filling up of the unrighteous deeds of those who are opposed to God. Look on the on the handout that I have for you, Matthew twenty three thirty two. Jesus says to those who are in the leadership of Israel in the temple. Fill up, then, the measure of guilt of your fathers, so that upon you may f- fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah the son of Barakiah. There's a filling up. So Bob has shown this, by the way, in a critical issues commentary. That the idea of this generation does not mean a 40-year window of people or people of a 100-year period but it's people who are characterized by unbelief from the time of Adam until the very end. And so notice he says, you're going to fill up the guilt upon your forefathers because they shed the blood of righteous Abel. Notice the phrase, they shed innocent blood or righteous blood from Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. When did Abel, where do you read about that story? The book of Genesis? Righteous Abel... This, I'm sorry, um, Zechariah, the son of Berzekiah. that's found in the book of Second Chronicles. Remember, the Israelites have the same canon, the same Old Testament we do, but there's a different order. Ours goes from Genesis to Malachi. Theirs goes from Genesis to Second Chronicles. Same books, different order. So what Jesus is saying is, in the entirety of the history, from Genesis. To Second Chronicles, from the beginning until the end of the... You are going to fill up their evil that they did. There's a filling up of evil. And one day when there's a filling up of the evil, there's a filling up of the repentance. It's all going to happen on a certain day that God alone knows. And then the Son comes. And He comes to save us. And so what Paul was saying by saying I was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ is if the bucket is so big, he was doing a fair share of suffering himself for the people of God. One day that bucket of suffering will be filled and the Messiah comes. Dear ones, there is an affliction that is ordained for the people of Christ because we are so associated with him that we are in the messianic afflictions. In fact, the the Jews had that very term, the messianic afflictions. That happens to the people of God. You are not only born into the promises, you were born into the afflictions. And Paul was saying he was doing his share and suffering in that way. Dear ones, do you see how the new apostolic reformation equivocates, saying Jesus really didn't do enough, you have to do more. But when you properly understand the passage, it makes a whole lot more sense. And Jesus is not deficient.
2: Yes. Yeah, and then, you know, the other aspect of this too is that the afflictions that we suffer, we're, we're being uh, built up, you know. Amen, uh, purpose. God is using... His providential will to build us up. We will be serving in the Messianic kingdom. So there's all kinds of scripture that you guys could probably recite from memory that just says, you know, consider it all joy, brethren, when you suffer for my sake. And Amen. I don't know if I got that right. but exactly so, so that's the, the good news part of it for us. God will not let, let us... Uh, tested or tempted beyond what we can bear. Amen. And, um, but he's building us up with this suffering too.
0: Amen. And there's going to be a reversal. One day, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, he will afflict those who have been afflicting us. Same term that's used, philipsis. Amen. That's the good news. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is clear even though men distort it, that you have not Made it unclear so that we may not know who you are, but you've made it clear, Lord. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, for our loved ones, our friends, our family who don't know you. We pray, Lord, that you would regenerate their heart, remove their moral inability, enable them to believe. Give us boldness, put the gospel upon our lips, give us opportunity, Lord, especially as the weather gets nice and we start moving about and with our neighbors. Lord, give us opportunity to preach your gospel so that others may be saved. In the meantime, enable us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that ordain the gospel. And um, I pray for Bob. I pray, Lord, that you give him clarity of thought as he preaches to us. Give us ears to hear and help us to be not just those who hear but are doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob.